Okay, now back in sermon mode, here we go. Hebrews chapter 11. So, in that clip though, what is faith? You know, it's, it's, it's weakness, it's ignorance, it's being uninformed, it's something for people that can't figure life out by themselves, can't stand on their own two feet, can't make it on their own. It's all of those kinds of things. And that is a pretty common perception, I would say, of people you know and I know, steeped in secular humanism, for whom this kind of religious faith is just something to be scoffed at and laughed at. It just doesn't make any sense. So rather than try and dismantle that whole view of faith, I simply this morning want to set that beside a richer and deeper view of faith that Hebrews 11 presents to us. Let's look at what the Scriptures actually say about faith, and it all really rises to this great climax in Hebrews 11, this great chapter on what real faith truly is. If you have a Bible, open up there. What is interesting when you get to this chapter is that the author, when he finally comes around to talking about the nature of faith, he's not so interested in definitions. He doesn't just want to give us an explanation and a few bullet points of what faith is. What he reaches for almost immediately are stories, stories of people. And you heard them and saw them through the reading of this chapter over communion, the stories of people of faith in the Old Testament and what it was that exemplified their lives. He has this brief and very generic definition of faith right at the beginning of Hebrews 11. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. And that is really like a scene setter of the whole thing. That would apply as much to the chair you're sitting on, to relying on the engine of your car on the way home and the roof over your head. We, we use faith all the time, every day. But the author is interested in a much richer and deeper picture of faith than that. And so he turns to the stories of the great heroes of faith in the Old Testament. Now, as you scan down this list, if you've been around church for quite a while, a few years, you'll see here all the usual suspects, all the people you would expect to see in a list of faith. You've got Abraham here, who exercised incredible faith in being prepared to offer his own son on the altar, right ready to cut the boy's throat when the angel intervened. Incredible faith. You see Noah, who built the ark, of course, not ha even when the earth had not experienced any rainfall ever. And God says, I'm going to send a flood. And Noah says, okay, I'll build an ark. You know, you know the story. You've seen Evan Almighty. You know how this works. And so that's, that's Noah. And then, of course, Moses leading the people out of slavery in Egypt, not really having a clue what was coming next. But let's go. You want to part the Red Sea, God? Okay, or I'm just going to follow. And this man of faith leads a whole people out of their bondage to a, a, a nation who was oppressing them. But I think what is more fascinating, and, and we don't have time to go through every story this morning, but what is interesting to me is some of the more unlikely candidates in the list, some of the more obscure people. Check out verse 31 here. All right, look at this. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Now, on any other uh, day, in any other circumstances, Rahab would be considered a model of unfaithfulness. She was culturally inferior. She was a Gentile. She was socially inferior. She was a woman. She was morally bankrupt. She was a prostitute. And she was politically disloyal. She committed treason against her own people. There's really nothing particularly good about Rahab. Her life is a life of debauchery. There's no indication after Israel came into the promised land that Rahab suddenly gave up prostitution at all. We don't know that. All we know is that there was a moment when the nation of Israel was on the edge of the promised land. They sent some spies in to, to check it out, suss it out, 
and a few landed at Rahab's house, and she sheltered them there, hid them there, and sent the uh, troops from her own people off in a different direction so that they wouldn't be found, and acknowledged in that moment that God was indeed God and was going to do something which would wipe out the town she was living in. And that was enough. That little bit of faith right there, which may never have flickered into anything after that, was enough for her to make this list of faith in Hebrews 11. Now check out another example here. It's my personal favorite. The next verse. And he, he starts wrapping it up saying, I do not have time to tell about, you, you kind of wish that he did have a bit more time maybe to tell us about these people, but he just rattles off some names. Gideon, Barak, Samson, and then this random, Jephthah. What do you know about Jephthah? You, you should go back and read this guy's story in, in Judges 11 and 12. Let me tell you about him. He was the illegitimate son of a prostitute. Not a great start for a man of faith right there. He finally, when he comes of age, his brothers kick him out of the house because they don't want anything to do with him, and he ends up being denied the family inheritance. He is living then out in the desert, leading a bunch of rebels and bandits and terrorists. Eventually, a foreign tribe wants his help in winning a battle that they're engaged in, and he says, all right, I'll come and help you as long as if we win, you guys make me king. So complete arrogance and self-righteousness as well. They consent to this request, so he fights for them as a mercenary. After that victory, he makes this stupid, stupid vow that the first thing that comes out of his house, he is going to sacrifice to God. Guess what comes out? His daughter walks out. He's bound to keep the oath. He slaughters his own daughter in this bizarre act of pagan ritualism, ends up killing his own child, his own daughter. He gets in a civil war after that with a tribe of his own fellow Israelites and ends up murdering thousands of his countrymen who were unarmed civilians. Man of faith, hey, Jephthah. So he makes the list, and uh, you kind of, kind of leaves you thinking, you know, you want to think it's about the Moses and the Abraham and Noah. These are the guys of faith. And what the heck is Jephthah doing in the list? How did he get in there? Is this like a writer's mistake or something? I think it tells you a little bit, doesn't it, about what faith is not. Faith is not having it all together. Faith is not living a perfectly moral life. It's not doing, ticking all the right boxes, getting everything right all the time, because some of these people just clearly didn't. Before and after, they may have had a particular moment of faith. And for Jephthah, by the way, it was, as far as we can tell, the only indication of faith in his life. There was one point at which he acknowledged that God would drive out his enemies before him. That's it. That, that's all it takes to get you into Hebrews 11. Right? It's not a huge criteria here. So he gets in. What, though, is the common denominator here? If it's not perfect morality, if it's not 100% correct doctrine or ticking the right boxes, doing the right things, what is it? Let me show you what I think is common to all of these stories, no matter who they are. Have a look in verse 13. I think it comes to its clearest expression here, what the author is getting at. All these people, there's a canvas across the entire narrative here, all these people were still living by faith, when they died. Now, that doesn't mean they were still living good moral lives when they died, but it means there was something going on here. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. Some of your translations there say foreigners and exiles, or aliens and strangers and, and, and those kinds of words. It's this idea of exile. The common denominator in all of these stories of faith is that these were people who lived their lives like they were in a type of exile. 
If you've been keeping up with the recent events in Pakistan, there's a context for understanding this. All, all of the uh, state of emergency that's been declared there and the international politics going on around uh, President Musharraf. And in the background of that story is this intriguing woman, Benazir Bhutto, who has spent the last, I think it's eight or nine years, in a kind of self-imposed exile in London. She's Pakistani, but she took off from the country eight or nine years ago to escape some alleged corruption charges. Now she has somehow brokered a deal with Musharraf and has come back and is seeking the prime ministership of Pakistan if these elections actually ever happen. But she has been in the state of exile. She's been over in London, no doubt longing for her homeland and uh, her fellow countrymen, but by her own choosing in many ways, being unable to return home. It is that longing for something outside of your own homeland. And this would have been a pretty powerful metaphor too for these Jews living in Rome, because remember, they were living outside of their homeland. They weren't in Palestine. They were in Rome. Now, technically, yes, they probably could have traveled back had they want to, but life was set up for them in Rome. Now, there still would have been that patriotic, nationalistic longing for the homeland, longing for the glory days, longing for the temple, longing for Zion, longing for Jerusalem, and making life work in Rome, but your heart is always somewhere else. The author grabs this idea and says that's a bit like what it means to have faith. It is not living a perfect life. It is simply living like you are in exile. Living like this life, this world, this place is not your home. These people, the next verse, verse 14 tells us, were looking for something else. They were looking ahead. They were looking for that heavenly country, the scriptures call it, that city which is of God, whose architect and builder is God. That's what they were looking for. Now, don't get this confused into thinking that somehow they were all expecting to go to heaven when they died in some other realm. That's not it. There's very little expectation in the Old Testament of this kind of afterlife idea. What they were expecting and thinking of is that God was up to something on this earth, right here on terra firma, that would outlast them that would exceed their own lifestyle. God was not finished with what he was doing in the world during their own existence, but they were simply part of a greater narrative, an unfolding story that was working itself out that would be beyond the horizon of their own life, far beyond what they could see, but somehow when it finally reached its last glorious and surprising chapter, they would be resurrected somehow, some way, to participate in this incredible future that God was preparing. Through the Old Testament times, it was never really articulated clearly. It was a vague hope. It wasn't concrete. They didn't know what this future would be like. They didn't have any tangible evidence of it, but they believed by faith that God was going to do something beyond their life and that what they did to invest in that future was more important than how things went in the present. And this left them in this present life in a state of exile. It led them to devalue present things, the present experiences of this life in favor of what was coming next. It led them to be more prepared to make some sacrifices when God asked them to. Like Abraham, prepared to lay down the life of his child because he believed that this was not the end of the story, that God would somehow work it out. It led them to be prepared to follow God even when they had no idea where they were going. Abraham leaves his hometown. God doesn't tell him where he's going to end up. He just says, leave this place. It was called Ur. That's probably enough reason to leave it to start with. Ur, you know, and he goes 
into this. He doesn't know. He just follows God. He's a nomad living his entire life. And when he died, he still had no idea what was really coming down the track. But he knew that there was more to it than just this, than just this life, this present existence, <clears throat> not floating away in a cloud somewhere, but that God was up to something on this earth, this earth far beyond his own life. And sometimes for these people of faith, this idea of exile worked out really, really well for them. And you have toward the end of the book of Hebrews some of the accounts of people who exhibited faith in this present life and things went really well. Think about Daniel who was spared the mouths of the lions because his faith that God would deliver him. Think about Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who were spared the fiery furnace. They stood in the midst of the flames and they weren't burned. Abraham even received back Isaac from the dead. He wasn't killed. He was returned to him. These were good results. And yet... If you look closely, as Hebrews 11 draws to its conclusion, you start to see that many of these people also exercised a faith that produced really, really bad results for them in the present life. Because they were looking for something that was to come, and they were investing in that rather than this, sometimes things just didn't work out at all for them. And you have these incredible accounts of the prophets here, people who were stoned and tortured and they were jeered at, they were flogged in chains, imprisonment, so on and so on and so on. And you can read many of these accounts for yourself in the Old Testament. Jeremiah was beaten, he was put in the stocks. Zechariah, prophet Zechariah was stoned to death. Imagine going that way, you know, having stones thrown at you until you die. Later Jewish writers tell us that the prophet Isaiah died through being sawn in two. It's not just a fairy tale, that's a pretty reliable account from at least three patristic writers tell us that's how Isaiah met his end. That's why that reference is in there about being sawn in two. It's probably pointing to Isaiah. So friends, when someone tells you, if you just have enough faith, things are going to be great for you. Things are going to work out. You'll be prosperous. You'll have an abundant life. You will be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and all your dreams will come true. This is not a bad place to point them to. This is not a bad chapter. And just say, well, let's just see, shall we? How did it work out here? Do, 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 do. So, yep, put in chains, imprisonment, uh, death by stoning. Excellent. Sounds like a great result for everybody. Happy families. <laughs> see, it's just not the case. It, in fact, it was precisely because of their faith that many of these guys suffered. They could have chosen the easy road. They could have said, yeah, really don't think that, that message is going go to go down too well with the king, God. Maybe we could soften it a little bit. Maybe I could just put a little press release together and we'll say it this way. No, no, they stood firm. They delivered the message, these prophets of old. And as a result, many of them went through huge afflictions. That's what faith meant for them. Often it means things go downhill in this life. But that's the point. It's about living as an exile in the here and now. Because you know there's something better that's coming. You know there is a glorious future. It's less and less about this life, this world. There begins to be a detachment from the present because their hearts were anchored in the future. Their hearts were anchored to God's glorious future. Didn't mean they thought this life was a waste of time. They understood and valued the fact that God was in the process of working this story forward. But they were just one piece, one piece on the chessboard. And things were going to outlive them by a long shot. Now look at how this all ends in Hebrews 11. Verse 39. These, so all of these Old Testament figures now, these were all commended for their faith, and yet none of them received what was promised. None of them ever saw the last chapter in the story. None of them ever saw it all get wrapped up. They just saw their chapter, and then they went and they believed that the story would continue. 
None of them received what was promised. And here, look at this verse 40. This just blows it all out of the water. God had planned something better for us. All of a sudden, the author brings this story racing forward into the present, right up to the present experience of his own readers, and says the reason that these people never received what it is they were looking toward and hoping toward is because God was holding it up his sleeve for us, for this generation. These people were living in the middle of the first century and had been around when God performed an incredible and dramatic historic act that changed the nature of faith forever. And hopefully by now in our series on Hebrews, whenever you see the word better, you know that it's talking about who? Jesus. That's right. Jesus. Yes. Better. Better always. Better than the sacrificial. You know, we don't need to go back over it all, but Jesus is constantly better. So even just to see this word should immediately, though Jesus is not mentioned in this verse, lead your mind to say, right, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is now something that is better than what these people had. Why is that? Because when Jesus came, this tradesman from a backwater village in Nazareth, he changed the shape of what faith would be forever. When Jesus died and rose again, he did not come to simply carry on this exile. He did not come to simply point everybody forward and say, yep, just to let you know, it's still coming. Keep hoping, keep holding out for it. Jesus didn't come to continue the exile. He came to begin the return home. He came to turn that corner in history whereby exile begins to become return. Return to the homeland. Return to the heavenly city. Return to the city of God. When Jesus died on the cross, friends, he won a cosmic victory over everything that keeps you and I in exile in our lives. Our own sin and stuff-ups and moral failures and weaknesses, he put it all to death, took it all on himself on the cross, won a victory not only over that, but on the one who stands behind all of that, Satan himself, the powers of darkness and evil, the author of all of that, Satan, he won that victory on the cross decisively and finally bringing to an end that exile. No longer is that heavenly city just a vague whim, no longer just some kind of a vague hope out there somewhere. Suddenly it became a reality because that thing that stood in the way of it becoming a reality, that dividing wall of sin was suddenly shattered on the cross and came crumbling down. And as Jesus rose then from the dead on the third day, he did so as the very first installment of what that glorious future would be. He did so as the prototype new human. The man filled with the Spirit, the man no longer fashioned after the flesh, now fashioned after the Spirit. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, now that Jesus has risen from the dead, he has risen as the first fruits of all who are one day going to rise. The first installment, the guarantee, the down payment, the deposit of everyone, you and I who follow Jesus, who will one day rise gloriously with him, Philippians 3, and our lowly bodies will be transformed to become like his glorious body. That's the hope. It is as if when Jesus rose from the dead, he purchased the title deed to that city and made it secure and firm and sure as something that is now real and actual in space-time history. Now, what does all that mean for us? It's all very well to talk about how Jesus has come and now the return home begins and so on, but look around. It doesn't look like we're living in a heavenly city yet, does it? It still very much feels like we're living in exile. 
like, well, I don't, I don't see this great city. I don't see this great heavenly country. And here's the reality. We, we are living at a unique moment in history. Because on one hand, the heavenly city is here. This is why in the very next chapter in Hebrews, the author can now say, you have come to the heavenly city. You have come to the new Jerusalem. You have come to Mount Zion. No longer simply bricks and mortar. But that city is evident and in actuality, wherever the Spirit of God is breaking in and doing the work of redemption. The Spirit is the greatest down payment of the new age. Not the new age, but the new age, you know. The age now of the return. The age that came after Easter, this side of the cross. The age that is marked by the presence of God's Spirit living within us and working in the world. Wherever you see the Spirit of God working, that is a breaking in of that future, that new creation, starting to just seep in here and there. Wherever God's at work setting people free and redeeming lives and, and just loosing chains of, of bondage to all kinds of things, bondage to addictions, bondage just to ourself and our own stupid sinful habits and just setting us free for something better than that, that's new creation breaking in right there. That's the heavenly city beginning to take shape on earth. Wherever you see people crossing that line of faith, coming with open arms into the kingdom of God, or coming as C.S. Lewis described his conversion, kicking and screaming into the kingdom of heaven. However it happens, when people come across the line, there's the spirit working, there's the new creation breaking in, there's the heavenly city, another brick, another brick, the walls are eventually being constructed. Wherever you see people taking a step of, of baptism, as we will have after the second service this morning, Natalie's going to be baptized. That kind of thing, you look at that, that's the heavenly city taking shape. That's people's lives being changed. Wherever you see families being reconciled, put back together, relationships being restored, people given back their dignity as human beings, people able to see a brighter future than what they'd previously been living in, people that are able to name themselves more strongly and boldly than they have before not with self-defeating names, but with new names that define their existence in the kingdom of heaven. That is the Spirit of God breaking in. That is the new creation taking shape. That's the heavenly city here right now, in the present. It really is a present reality. And yet, at the same time, we now wait for one great final shake-up of all things. Again, we're going to get to this in Hebrews 12. Once more, says the Lord, I will shake the heavens and the earth. There will be one day this tumultuous upheaval of all things, one final massive turbulence, and then the city will be here in full. Not that we will suddenly disappear and sit on clouds with harps and dinner plates behind our head for eternity, but heaven itself will descend to earth. At that time, the Lord's prayer will be fulfilled when Jesus prayed, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, one day that prayer is going to be answered and God's will will be done on earth exactly as it is in heaven. The heavenly city, soak yourself in Revelation 21 and 22 and look at the picture, the heavenly city coming down to earth. Heaven and earth finally become one. The kingdom of this earth becomes the kingdom of our God. We don't really know exactly what that future is going to be like when Jesus returns and claims his rightful place as king, not just in principle, but in fact and in reality. We have glimpses of it, mostly in metaphor, in the Old Testament, the realization of those great visions of Isaiah, who described a city where there'd no longer be heard the voice of weeping and crying in its streets. No longer would an infant just live a few days and then die. No longer would a young man or woman be cut down in the prime of their life. 
No longer would an old man or woman fail to live out their years, but people would live long, long, long lives. And the hills, Isaiah tells, no, this is Amos, he says, the hills will drip with new wine and the land will bear new grain. There will be plenty to go around. There will be no more death and dying and mourning and crying. Nothing defiled, nothing shameful, nothing deceitful ever enters the city gates. Doors don't need to be locked anymore because there's nothing bad coming in. And the knowledge of the glory of God fills the whole earth as waters cover the sea. What a great vision. And then, friends, on that day, we will finally be home. It really is worth soaking yourself in those pictures, soaking yourself in those promises, anchoring your heart and your mind, as these heroes of faith did in the Old Testament, in that new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the promised homeland, because you know what happens as you start to do that. You just start to feel, and maybe you're feeling it even now, just a little bit of detachment from this life. Suddenly, as you feast your mind and your heart on that future which is to come, as that old chorus said, the things of this world become strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Suddenly, the, the, the worries and concerns, the petty squabbles, the, the fussing about our bank balance and making ends meet and attaining a certain lifestyle level or whatever, just suddenly takes on a whole new perspective. And we realize this is not our home. This earth is, because it's all going to happen here, but this life, this present state of affairs, is not where we're going to end up. We are expecting something much greater. And the more you anchor yourself in that future, the more you are led to live as an exile in the present life. And that exilic state of living is simply what the Bible describes as faith. And that's, I think, the easiest way to understand it. Live as an exile. And as that mentality takes over, it's not about me telling you to go and do three new things tomorrow and behave a different way. It is about reshaping your thinking and beginning to understand yourself as an exile, a stranger, an alien, just passing through this life. I'm on my way home. This is not my home. I'm not anchoring down here. And it begins to lead you to make new decisions and take new steps. It begins to make you more willing <clears throat> to sacrifice. Less willing just to chase a lifestyle just to chase the accumulation of wealth and material assets just to get the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Less concerned with all of that. Not that a good lifestyle is bad, but less emotional energy, less physical energy, less of our time starts going into just building a home for ourselves and a comfortable little platform and world for ourselves here. And more time starts going into investing in things that are going to echo in eternity that will matter in the heavenly home. We begin to be more prepared to give stuff away, fight to simplify our lives, fight against complexity. We begin to, to hold our own assets and money with a looser grip because we realize it has all come from God and it's all going back to Him. And if I can bless someone else with it and if I can make an investment in the heavenly city and the promised homeland rather than just another edifice to myself in this world, I'm going to be doing a better thing. And it makes us more willing to just be generous, have a generous spirit, simplify our lives, eliminate the clutter, eliminate the hurriedness as best we can. Of course, it's tough in 21st century Western life. We're so chaotic. We're so agenda-driven. But it means that against that grain, there comes a new way of thinking. And our hearts and minds are anchored in our eternal home. It makes us more willing, friends, to step out 
when God asks us to step out, even if we don't know where it's all going to end up. Man, this is right, this is right where I'm at right now, just in terms of you know, the elders and I wrestling with where we're going as a church and what the future holds. And I'll be honest with you, I, I'm a structure guy. I come at this with strategies, plans, structures, and bullet points, you know. And God is just working in my heart right now. I'll be honest with you, He really is. And He's just beginning to break that and just say, you know what, just you need to listen and you just need to wait and you need to let me lead. And you need to move into the passenger seat for a while, and I'll set the pace here. And that's hard, man. It, it is. And I'm not setting myself up as some epitome of faith at all, because, man, this is stretching me big time. But I just sense that this is, this is what we're talking about. It's being a bit more prepared just to rest on the leading of God's Spirit a little bit more, allow Him to set the pace, and be prepared when He calls us to, to take that step, even if you don't quite know exactly where the end goal is going to be. You'll have to make sense of this in your own life, I don't have all the examples, but just think through how this might work in your context to be prepared to step out without all the pieces being together, without having all the answers, all the boxes ticked. Just put the strategies and plans, the five-year plan aside for a minute and just say, God, where are you actually leading in all of this? Where are you? That's not a bad question to ask. And maybe a little bit more willingness to persevere through the tough times as well, knowing that this is not the last word. This life is not the day of reconciliation, but we await the great and terrible day of the Lord, as Joel described it, the final shake-up of all things, when God will put to right all the wrongs, and He will administer justice to the nations. He will correct every injustice. And you can just wait for that. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Leave it. It's going to happen, and everything you feel grieved by and hurt by, including things that you feel God Himself has, has hurt you, one day that will be put to right. The perspective will change. Things will be straightforward. You'll see it. But you don't see it yet. You're just looking at the back of the tapestry right now. It's a mess. It's just cords and threads everywhere. But one day, it'll be turned around, and you'll see that glorious picture. And there'll be this great collective, oh, I get it. That'll be a great day. Friends, we have an even greater basis for our faith than these people in the Old Testament. Strange as it may seem, they had only the future orientation toward that great heavenly city. They were anchored to that. But think about where we now are. We are anchored not only to that great future which awaits us, we are also anchored to the cross of Christ, which has purchased it for us and turned it into a reality and come as the down payment, the first installment, the beginning of the fulfillment, not just the promise, the promise, the promise. Now, the fulfillment started the future is already here. In part, but it's already here. And so we now find ourselves in this wonderful historic moment where we are anchored both to the cross and the new creation. And those two anchoring points should shape our life of faith in the present in a remarkable and a profound way. We look back to all Jesus has done for us and we look forward to the way that has secured for us an unbelievable future and we invest in that and not in this present fleeting existence. We do things now that will make a difference in the future that is to come. That is quite simply what it is to live by faith. I want to finish this morning by uh, trying to make this really practical for you. And I've tried to rewrite here my own Hebrews 11, all right? I'm not usually given to poetry, so this is, I'm in uncharted waters here. But uh, this is drawn from your stories. Those of you that I know and have had conversations with about different things, this is our own Hebrews 11 that we own because I think it's easy to read a chapter like that and think it's about all the great and glorious and glamorous things. It's about defeating Goliath, you know, and all this stuff. Yes, it is, but it's also about very ordinary steps of faith, just things that we do 
in our everyday lives that exhibit that same attitude. I think it looks a little bit like this. By faith, a couple pray for their non-Christian son that his heart would be softened and turned toward God. By faith, a student holds on to God's promises of enduring love and faithfulness through his battle with depression. By faith, a young couple makes significant financial sacrifices to provide care and education for their autistic son. By faith, a young man turns down a business career to work full-time in a ministry reaching university students, despite him being a disappointment to his parents. By faith, an ordinary bloke puts on breakfasts for other blokes as a way to build relationships and help people gradually move toward Jesus. By faith, a young woman breaks up a relationship with her boyfriend because she knows it's not helping her grow toward Christ. By faith, a business executive sacrifices a year's salary to pursue theological education and then returns to the corporate world to practice his theology in the marketplace. By faith, a teacher invests years in praying for and sowing seeds of the gospel with her non-Christian colleagues, never seeing any real results, but persevering anyway. By faith, a young couple spend time and money traveling to Vanuatu to reach out to people in one of the spiritually darkest areas of the Pacific. And by faith, a new mother prays desperately for the health of the baby in her arms, born 17 weeks premature. Friends, these are just a few stories and I share them with you, not to glorify these people, but to simply say these are examples of everyday faith. And for us to grab hold of that, that faith comes in the simplest ways and the simplest times, just through beginning to understand yourself as an exile in this world, a stranger, an alien, just passing through. This is not the end. We are just journeying. We're no longer exiles. We're exiles on the way home, thanks to Jesus. That's what it means to live by faith. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that we stand on the shoulders of giants, these men and women of faith in Hebrews 11. It's, a, it's an amazing legacy to live up to, Lord, and, and your word tells us in this very next chapter that they now form this great cloud of witnesses around us. God, they're now filling the stands as we run, and, and they've passed the baton on to us, and they're now watching us as we fix our eyes on you, Jesus. Who, are, who is the author and the perfecter of faith. You're the author of it because you define what it is to have faith in this life, and you one day will be the perfecter of this faith. You'll bring it to completion. You'll redeem and restore all things, including our own lives and hearts. And we anxiously look forward to that day. And until then, Lord, we ask that you would help us to run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. Looking to you, the one who despised the shame but endured the cross anyway and sat down at the right hand of God. Lord, let us fix our eyes on you so that we might not grow weary and lose heart in this present life, but persevere as people of faith, looking both to the cross and forward to the new creation, our hearts anchored in those realities, our spirits stirred by what you've already accomplished on our behalf, and our hearts constantly pulled forward to that future that awaits us. We groan and long for it with all creation, for that liberation that will come on that day when you finally are Lord of all. And we thank you until then. Help us to walk in faith before you. In Jesus' name, amen.